0: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Russell Williams won two Oscars for Best Sound on Glory and Dances with Wolves, becoming the first black two-time Oscar winner in movie history. So you can imagine his shock when the Academy decided to remove eight categories including best sound from the live Oscars telecast this Sunday. You'll hear his thoughts on that controversy at the end of this podcast, but first hear all about his historic career in our convo from 2016 when he donated his Oscars to the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. I'm here with the one and only AU professor and two-time Oscar winner, Russell Williams. Russell, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Uh, Thanks for the invite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been a long time coming because I'm trying to remember, it was probably a year or so ago, we heard that you uh, are going to be donating uh, your two Oscars as as well as a Nagra sound machine to the brand new Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture downtown on the Mall. Um, How did they contact you, first of all, and and what was sort of behind your decision to donate? Because these are some prized possession of yours, sir.
1: Yeah, I, I, many people have asked me that, Jason, and uh, in terms of why I want to donate, um, I'm a D.C. native, and I felt that, and and not only D.C., but Southeast D.C., so most of the time Southeast shows up in the news now, someone is dead. That's not the Southeast I grew up in, and hopefully, as a longtime uh, friend and admirer of the Smithsonian Collection as a kid, I said, well, Maybe my statuettes might inspire some young people, you know, to understand that not only can they win Oscars behind camera, but, you know, you can actually uh, fulfill your dream if you're persistent enough. Um, as, as far as how they reached me, it's the other way around. I reached uh, them. Uh, so what happened, uh, 2014, I want to say it was April 15th, the director, uh, Lonnie Bunch, who's also an AU alum. Uh, was uh, hosting a a screening of 42. Oh, the Jackie Robinson. Absolutely, the Jackie Robinson film, and they screened that at the the National Museum of American History.
0: They came to the White House, too, I believe. Okay. Yeah.
1: And I uh, went to see that movie because my dad was a big Jackie Robinson fan. I mean, every time I did a half ass job with something <laughs> either in the yard or around the house. He would always say, if Jackie Robinson, if Jackie Robinson, you know.
0: That's not how Jackie would do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and
1: plus he had 20,000 people uh, screaming at him the whole time. So I really came to see the movie for two reasons. One, just to see it, and two, to see, because his eyesight was getting a little dim, to see whether he would be able to appreciate it. Mm. And so uh, at the end of that, and of course the filmmakers were there, and Lonnie did a great interview. And so, you know, we reconnected. How have you been so and so on? I said, oh, yeah. And by the way, uh, would you like a couple of Academy Awards and a couple of Emmys? And his eyes lit up. He said, let's make an appointment. And so, so we actually talked in August of that year. And then he put me with his curators. And, uh, you know, they're, they're downtown already. I mean, they've had, Actually, they've had them since 2014.
0: Oh, so they've been out of your possession for that for a oh, long okay. time. Yeah, they've yeah. been dusting them off
1: and sorting out what <laughs> of the stuff I gave them they wanted to put on display first. So yes. it's got to be
0: cool though to be able to bring you know family members, friends to the museum. I mean, I know it's not going to be in your house, so it's hard to let them go. I'm sure, but it's almost even cooler to be able to go there and see a plaque and see, you know that's special stuff. Yeah, and I mean you know when I lived in L.A. and the Oscars
1: were brand new, there was a lot of foot traffic. You know, right. but as they've gotten older and also, uh, I thought that rather than to wait until later and maybe family members want one or somebody wants to, yeah. I said, let me just put these in the <laughs> Smithsonian for safekeeping, and I know that they'll always be part of, of our national collection. Yeah. But um, I, I blame my mom and my dad uh, as, a, as a kid. One summer my mom said, well, we're going to every building in Washington that has a tour. <laughs> and, Jason, I couldn't think of a worse possible, you know, it's like, what? I already had my, my summer planned out. I was going to throw rocks at the girls, and I was going to play <laughs> softball and stuff. But as we did these tours, and as we went into these great buildings, and I saw all of these exhibits, I mean, I never thought then I would have anything to contribute right. to the Smithsonian, but it's it may sound corny, but the years I lived in Los Angeles, I actually missed having a facility like that with all of these different diverse pieces of art and history and what have you, uh, airplanes, of course. You take them for granted when you're you here. Do, you do, and, and, and it's free, Yeah. you know, and it's all in yeah. one spot for the most part. If I wanted yeah. to hit four or five museums in L.A., I may have to drive 100 miles.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You know, so— uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't until I heard that the, cause the museum has been rumored and talked about for decades. I mean, I think technically a hundred years, but I think in the last 40 years, there was a lot more buzz about it. And when I heard that it was actually going to happen, I said, Hmm, that's a thought, you know, <laughs> and then I had to convince myself that I could part with them and not have, you know, this regret yeah. that, Oh, well, did I make a mistake? But as soon as I saw them, In the, I went down to the donor's display this uh, past Saturday, and I said, okay, that's fitting. (laughs) I'm happy. What
0: what will our listeners, if they had out there this weekend, what are they going to see in the exhibit? Explain it's the two Oscars, but tell them also what a NAGRA is, because a lot of people listening probably don't know (laughs) what it is.
1: Well, long before we had the iPods and all these (laughs) digital uh, devices that everybody just puts in their pocket and carries around and sometimes walks out in front of traffic unknowingly. In order for us to record live dialogue on the set, this recorder called a Nagra, uh, which it's already heavy without batteries in it, and it carried 12 D-Cell batteries. Okay, those of you who don't know what a D-Cell is, Google it, okay? And so that allowed me and other people who did my job as a production sound mixer, either slung over your shoulder, or you have like a portable cart that's on wheels, you were able to record on quarter-inch tape. Google that if you're not familiar with that. (laughs) And we would actually get the live dialogue of the actors while they were being filmed. And you had to have more than one, so they have two of mine. They have a 4.2, which is a mono machine, meaning only one channel, and a 4S, which is a two-track machine. Pretty much all the people who do the job I used to do now have eight channels available to them or more, all digital, no tape. You know, a lot easier to move your content around than in my day. But uh, one thing that Nagra would do, would work hot, cold, you know, while you were running in cars, helicopters that were doing banks. It would continue to run and stay in sync.
0: Wow. Now, how did did you even get into uh, that in the first place? I mean, you talked about being a kid here in Southeast and going to the museums, but where did the film spark start and how did you make your way uh, west? How'd you go west, young man?
1: Interesting. Yeah, well, uh, I think my first professional uh, exposure to, let's say, to sound, because I was a piano student and I also played uh, sousaphone and tuba in Wilson's (laughs) Concert Orchestra back in the 70s. Um, But my first real professional exposure to to sound was at WAMU-FM while I was still a student at American U., so from 70 to 74, and then the radio show continued into the 80s. 79, I moved to L.A. What got me into the film side of things was first, uh, as, a, as a teenager, seeing this film that Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger were in called In the Heat he didn't of the night. night. And so not only were they so impressive on camera, but by that time I was listening to a lot of jazz, and I said, wait a minute. Quincy Jones did the score. yeah, And now, that
0: Ray Charles opening yeah, game, too. And yeah, Ray
1: Charles. And then Rosson Roland Kirk was playing yeah. some of the flute solos. Yeah. And so the whole concept of an African-American working behind the camera was a revelation. I mean, obviously, we'd had African-American actors in front mm. of camera, you know, since the silent days. So it wasn't an immediate like, okay, I've got to go to Hollywood. But at least something tapped me on the shoulder. It something to, to be continued. Now, back in the Jurassic period when I started working – For uh, the networks, my first real break was at NBC Washington. I did every day of the Watergate hearings as an engineer. No joke. I didn't know that. Yep. I never went to the Hill, but I was always up on Nebraska Avenue. Wow. But I had, by the time I had changed my major from journalism to broadcast production, and then after working at NBC, I said, well, I don't need to take classes in broadcast production. I'm putting on the Today Show. I'm doing nightly news and so forth. So I decided to take some film classes because that was our tradition. Sunday school, church, Sunday dinner, and pick a movie. Yeah, And I so I didn't realize how many films I had seen, even though I couldn't tell you what this shot was called and who directed this. But my love of film as, as a medium really was fostered at American. Uh, a, a professor named Dr. Frank Taraj was the person who really encouraged me and everybody else in the class to go out and see films from uh, international filmmakers. So subtitles became you know, a regular weekly event for me. Mm -hmm. And back then we were still shooting news on film. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons I left Channel 4 is that at Channel 7 at the time, not only were they shooting hard news on film, but they also had a documentary unit. And this gentleman named Paul Fine, he and his wife Holly worked at 7, and they also worked 60 Minutes. Well, they opened the door for me, and so I started working as the second documentary unit sound recordist. I see. And the first job, the first real job I had after getting that position, three weeks later, we were in Rome, you know, uh, doing some filming. And I said, oh, okay, so this is doable. So not only do I see the world, do what I love to do, and somebody else picks up the tab. I mean, (laughs) you can't beat that. Can't beat that. It still took me another four years to decide to move to L.A., but. Uh, what precipitated that? There was a small independent film that came here to shoot. Now, I don't think that film was ever released. Okay. But those were the first group of people I actually met that had a, what then would have been, um, what was L.A.'s area code? A 213 area code. Okay. So I took some numbers down in about a year of saving up money, and I think my last job here in town was at WMAL Radio. As an engineer, I said, okay, I'll take the NST plunge. There was this airline called TWA. Oh, yes. Google that, uh, you young folks. Yes. And uh, July 21, I had a 90-day leave of absence from WMEL. So it was sink or swim. And in those 90 days, they gave me enough of a hook <laughs> that I could work freelance and continue to make a living. So I quit my job, packed the rest of the stuff on another flight, had some of it sent out by Amtrak, And then another 25 years, you know. It took me seven years to get in the union. It took me nine years to get on my first real feature film meaning in the sense that it was... Not only a great script, great actors, mm. and just a joy to work on. That was a little movie called Field of Dreams. Yeah, you might
0: have heard of it. Might have heard of it. <laughs> Some it famous sound as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and
1: and Jason, I never look back from that point on, you know. But it it but I think that anybody that gets off the plane in LAX, and I tell my students at American, uh, trust me, this is not an original idea. It wasn't an original <laughs> idea when I did it. Yeah. So expect there to be a long line in front of you. And I think the first set that I saw um, when I was in LA at the time, the MGM Studios, which are now Sony, uh, one of my buddies who had moved out a year ahead a time a year a year before I went out worked on Dallas. Oh yes. And so when you went on to the, on the Dallas stage, Jason, uh, J.R. Ewing's house was built full scale on one half of the sound stage. Two Mercedes in the garage, a little swimming pool in the back. On the other side of the soundstage were all the what we call swing sets. So his office or if if somebody was making a doctor visit or somebody was going to see the golf pro. And I sat there and I said, "Okay, all of this for a little television show. (laughs) And see, back then, TV was like, "Eh, you know, if you want to really be in the business, you want to be in features. I mean, now television is a great medium to be involved in. But I stood on that soundstage, Jason, and I said, "Okay, 10 years. Before I can throw in the towel and go home, meaning not like I could go home for holidays and birthdays and things like that. But in terms of quitting and going back to whatever I was doing here, I said it's going to take at least 10 years. And so, as I said, seven years to get in the union, nine years to get on a real movie. Uh, First Emmy was 1988. That also was nine years in. And first oscar 10 years in Eight, so nine. i said okay i guess i can stay another 10 years
0: that's <laughs> awesome and you mentioned sydney poitier earlier but when if if, if someone asked sort of the trivia fact you know who's the first african-american to win multiple to donate to this museum you'd be you know most folks on the street might say oh was it sydney was it right. denzel yeah, exactly. spike or quincy <laughs> Jones?" you know but it's you sir how, right. how cool of a, you know how much of an honor is it for that distinction well
1: uh jason i, I would say for sure. That he, especially when these these Oscars were brand new, I would always say I may not be the first African American who deserves to be the first multiple winner, but I'll take that distinction. Yeah, you know I'll take it. I think when I when I really started working on bigger pictures, I had hoped to be the first African American to win for sound, but rightly uh, another multiple winner, a gentleman named Willie Burton, and he had been doing great work and had been in the union actually before I even came to L.A. And I want to say he won his first Oscar in uh, 1989 for Buddy Holly Story. He won his second one uh, many years later for Dream Girl. So I said, okay, well, that record's already gone. Uh, so then I win the very next year for Glory. Yeah. There's no way, I'm in my mind, right. I win again right. for dances. There's no way. It's not going to happen. Uh, and then when it happened, I said, okay, well, th- th- here's a record. Because then I went and scrupulously looked, and, of course, then there was no Google. There was no <laughs> I, IMDB.com. It's harder to look it up. Yeah, much harder to <laughs> look it up back then. So I was kind of hesitant to announce after the actual, well, during yeah. the little press shoot that happens behind stage, I I announced to the press corps that I was the first African American to win multiple Oscars, and then they quizzed me. They said, Quincy Jones, I said, six nominations, no wins. They said, Whoopi Goldberg, I said, second nomination, one win. So then they left me alone, and it actually turned out to be a little line on the front page of Variety. It's the first time I ever hit, and probably the last time (laughs) I was on the front page of the (laughs) trades. So... But but until yeah.
0: after this interview, of course. <laughs> okay, hey, you know what? Uh, that
1: that that to me is something always to look forward to. I'm also uh, happy to say that I think partly because I work behind camera, because one of the things I notice going in uh, with the actors. I mean, if you're an actor, it doesn't matter ethnicity. People are going to make and it's, and they really do make a face value judgment right then. Right. You're too tall. You're too old. That's not the look we're looking for. We're, right. do you, have you dyed your hair blonde? Can you gain 10 pounds? Can you lose 20 pounds?
0: You Whereas you're judged
1: more on the work right? If, if, behind if, the if scenes. you turn that button on and you heard the actors and you heard Denzel, you heard James Earl Jones, you heard Kevin Costner, and they didn't sound like Mickey Mouse or somebody else, yeah. okay, then I guess this person did their job. Now, the other thing to mention, and I think this is true for any role on camera or behind camera, all our work is collaborative. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, but in in the way the Oscars are structured, if you went for cinematography, the cinematographer usually goes up by him or herself. In sound, it would be myself, and then generally two or three post-production people, Mm -hmm. because you're not supposed to really be able to tell the difference between what I did on location and what they've done later. Obviously, the big orchestra wasn't there. When uh say Bert Lancaster steps over the baseline and, and helps Kevin's daughter. Not right? enough room on yeah, the field no you know. Not enough acreage, uh, disappearing but, into the corner. Right, right. You know, but we could have, but that's another interesting preview piece about Field of Dreams. Let's that, just
0: dive into Field of Dreams, baby. Go ahead. Well, man we Personal had, favorite of mine. I love that
1: movie. Oh look, I mean my dad and I went to see it together and um because my mom and dad were were very kind of like, well we, we first of all, we were kind of uh, frightened that you left your permanent job at the Library of Congress uh, to take this temporary job at Channel 4, right, during Watergate. I said, but this is this is the industry I want to be in. Right. And so, but I was still in D.C., so, you know, I was seeing them regularly. Then I decided, hey, look, I'm going to move to Los Angeles. They were, oh, no, 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 no. And then, of course, I'd been out there many years. And there weren't that many things I could, you know, I'd worked on the Billionaire Boys Club miniseries and, uh some things like that that were decent that turned up on television. Yeah. But in terms of feature films, this was the first feature film that we had a, actually had a chance to go see together that I worked on. Wow. And then my dad said, okay, now I know I why it. you moved across country. And, you know, I'm just honored. Um when And, we and were,
0: such father-son themes in the movie, Yeah, I mean, too.
1: I, I, I thought that that movie should have won everything it was nominated for, number one, because it's not really that unusual to go to a movie, especially in those eras where you would see – uh, women crying in the theater, but to see guys crying in a the movie theater—that almost never happens.
0: It still gets me. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding? we, we <laughs> interviewed Kevin Costner. It was over the phone, of course. Okay. It wasn't in person like you. Okay, and um, he was—he basically said, you know, and I agree. It's this generation's. It's a wonderful life. Absolutely, it's that magical fantasy, your magical realism thing, and it, I just adore the movie.
1: I mean, when uh, and 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 since. Some of this stuff was done in post production. So I was completely unprepared for when Ray Leota, Shoeless Joe, was walking towards the corn for the last time and, and they established a telepathic relationship. And he says, It was you. Yeah. And then Liotta says, No, Ray, it was you. It's like, <laughs> uh, it Gets me. <laughs> All the you want to catch? And the, Dad, time, every, every, and the whole, time, whole end. The whole end of it is just <laughs> like, Oh my goodness. I mean, it still works. But while we were shooting that, that summer, 1988 was probably the worst drought that Iowa had seen. Oh. So the corn wasn't even up to belt
0: level. It wasn't even belt What did they high. say? Knee high by the fourth right, of July right, exactly. usually. <laughs> yeah.
1: And and so in order for the gag to work in movie parlance, yeah. in order for them to be able to walk into the corn and for ILM's, you yeah. know, visual effects to work, the corn had to be able to above everybody's head so they actually literally had to truck in water from the Mississippi so what we did is on our shooting schedule we moved into the scenes in Dubuque subbing for Boston where we yeah. meet James Earl Jones and yeah, yeah. you know Kevin's going up come and down the street looking <laughs> go the distance yeah right yeah we're looking we're doing nothing <laughs> wait <laughs> waiting for the corn to finally get high enough yeah. to cover the actors heads yeah. uh, uh <laughs> I, I say that James Earl Jones was one of the classic but not only that, but for me as a guy, like I said, as a kid going to the movies with my parents, I couldn't believe I'm sitting here recording Burt Lancaster. It's unbelievable. I Moonlight mean, Grant. As old as he was, he still had that jaw, right. man. He still had that glint in his eye. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I think that's the only time I can remember where I teared up on set because, see, yeah. when we're shooting on set, I don't have the benefit of the music and the effects and everything else. But when he stepped over that bass base pad... Yeah to attend to Kevin's daughter. Yeah. And I was sitting there and I was like, why am I misty eyed You know, <laughs> and that's Bert, man. Bert could deliver a line. He could, as we said, oh. actually, act, act, it was uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman and Wag the Dog. He said, you got to sell that line. He could sell
0: a line, man. <laughs> he he could really could. It. A cookie full of, full of arsenic. Right, like, right. Oh, you know? Sweet <laughs> smells. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, he was great. Or from here to return. Oh, the, the, the list goes on and on. I mean, it's it's just, I
1: mean, and so, so to me, all of the low-budget films and the little horror movies mm-hmm. and things like that—that that I hope no one actually a lot of that could have actually been lost from history had enough for, been for IMDb <laughs> to remind everybody. You know, they found all your that early stuff. work. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, okay, it paid the bills and it gave me practice for the
0: big time. You were paying your bills. You were paying your dues. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, exactly. Most importantly. But so sound-wise on Field of Dreams. Okay. Is it? I mean, when you watch it. You, the cracks of the bat or, or yeah, the ball yeah. in Ray Liotta's glove, like right. It makes it so romanticize our Pat American pastime. What was it like actually recording that? Or, or you're mixing, you're mixing, right? Yeah. And, much... and so
1: I'm, I'm some of the stu- some of the time, especially on on our days off or even in the evenings, I'm out recording like the crickets and, and the night music. Um, anytime the, the players are playing catch, but not on camera. I'm trying to get effects of just what you said. You know that ball coming into the mitt, and and we couldn't really play on the field while the field was still going to be on camera. But the other the other thing that that it awakened for me was that having lost two Senators teams by then, oh, I yeah. had really kind of soured on Major League Baseball. Right? <laughs> you see,
0: baseball was
1: gone. You know, and and so when I actually got to the ball field and we got into the story, it really rekindled how much I love the game of baseball. And then after we had pretty much shot the field out of the movie, then we could play on the field again. And and it was just, it was just something magical about that field. And I'm so glad that that farmer didn't plow it under because yeah. he could have and put corn. And they back argued there. over the
0: rights. The right? They did. There weren't like two owners that divided it in right. half yeah, for I years think, and I years. Think but from yeah. the
1: third baseline yeah. and and <laughs> and. and Right field yeah. belong to uh, yeah. belong. Actually, the yeah. third baseline and left field belong to an, another farmer's yeah. uh, property. But they got that all settled. And, and I think that even in the movie, when Gabby Hoffman says, you know, people will come yeah. and they have, they continued to come uh, since we finished shooting yeah. that film. Is this heaven? No,
0: it's Iowa. It's Iowa. La- last Field of Dreams question. OK. Is it true? Yes. That if you build it, he will come is the director, Phil Alden Robinson. And the only, re- yeah, the only
1: reason I know that. Uh, because I've asked him that personally and he wouldn't cop to it one way or the other, but somewhere I saw a photo of him. I think it was in one of the audio rental places. There's a photo of him looking up at this big Norman microphone. I said, ah, uh, you know, he's not in there, you know, <laughs> narrating an audio book. Right. And so he is the voice.
0: So that, but that's still kind of uh, mysterious. He doesn't want to confirm it. Well, but, I
1: mean, this was many years ago when uh, I asked him, and he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't cop to it. But I, right. the picture is, is is worth a thousand words. Yeah. So I'm sorry, Phil. You know, I'm sorry <laughs> to, you know. <laughs>
0: he pres- is Isn't he president of um? What is he? Is he SAG well, or what well, he, he, or yeah, he, he was the academy. Yeah, he's a a, he's
1: he's still a governor in the yeah. academy. Yeah, and uh, and and we, we we still are in touch, and for some reason. And it's it's kind of heartbreaking to me because as he remembers working on Field of Dreams, it was a, it was a real difficult shoot for him. As I remember it, it was like it was heaven. Yeah. And I said, Phil, I mean, you know, the tenth, the fifteenth, the twentieth. I said, aren't we going back to Iowa? I said, Well, no, Kevin's going. I, I'm not going. I said, Phil, I said, this is an American classic, man. You have to come back. Yeah. You know. Uh. But that, that's his that's his choice. Um. <laughs> I, I would love to go back and spend some time in Dyersville. I mean, it was just—it was really the beginning of of me working on quality prod, uh, quality film
0: projects. That's awesome. Speaking of which, Field of Dreams '89, competing that year, right, against your the one that won you the Oscar <laughs> right. glory. I mean, to me, I mean, can you name a better Civil War movie? I mean, it's it's great stuff. Morgan Freeman, Denzel Washington, Matthew Broderick, Carrie Elwes, man. And uh, your what was it like? First of all, um, Mr. Edzwick.
1: What's yes. it like working for him? Well, Ed Ed had a, a really great reputation working in television. He already had the thirty-something he and Marshall uh, had had that behind them, and so this was his first feature film as a director. Um, I think the anchoring force was our wonderful producer Freddie Fields, mm. and Freddie had come from the big agency side. I mean, he had some of the biggest clients in Hollywood when he was agenting. And then he decided that he wanted to produce. And I'm not quite clear on how the script got into his hands, but I, I know for sure how I ended up getting on the film. I was asked to come interviewed by this gentleman named Jan Peter Brugge. And we had worked on a small, low budget little TV half hour project. And I hadn't heard from him, I think, in probably four years or more. And then he calls me out of the blue and says, you know, Russell, I'd like for you to come interview for this Civil War movie that we're mounting. It stars Matthew Broderick, right?
0: Who so, just done Ferris Bueller, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And
1: and so that's what I think a lot of people couldn't get ready for is the depth of Matthew Broderick's yeah. work as an actor because, you know, he comes from a stage family. Right. So you just put the script in front of him. What does the script call for? He can deliver. But uh, by this time, I had worked on enough films to not only look at, okay, what the story says, but now I'm looking for the so-called aggravation factor. Okay, so Civil War movie means mostly exterior. Uh, They said in Georgia, I said okay, so that means that even though it's not gonna be like Chicago cold, cold at nights probably rain. So I'm thinking okay, well, let's see how the meeting goes. But then luckily, by even being in L.A., I would always either um, subscribe to the Post one year and on alternate years the New York Times, and the New York Sunday Times had a story about this Civil War movie starring Matthew Broderick because Peter didn't say anything about the 54th Mass, right? Yeah. And, you I, know, on the phone call, so yeah. I'm saying, oh, wait a minute, 54th Mass, and yeah. we've signed Morgan Freeman. We're right. uh, hoping that Denzel will sign this up. This young guy, you yeah. might
0: not know him, Denzel. Yeah. <laughs> and I
1: said, oh, you mean that Civil War movie? I said, yeah. okay, well, I'll pay them to be on this one. Yeah, yeah. So obviously the interview went fine, um, and, I, and I think the thing that I liked about uh, Ed on set is that he had very clear ideas about how he wanted the scenes to play. But then as he really looked at the depth and the breadth of his actor core and also the technical assistance that he was getting from from the Mm reenactors who also did wonderful work on camera, you know, he began to understand that, okay, let these guys work out how the energy and the dynamics and this whole thing of. Take is the scene where Morgan Freeman is standing post uh, as a century with his pike. Mm-hmm. There was a discussion about how soon he should respond to Matthew Broderick and Matthew Broderick's character. Uh, Robert Gould Shaw says, well, I'd like for you to tell him, give me information about the men from time to time. You know, and, and um, so Ed thought that he should answer immediately. And Morgan says, no, you know, just, I'm, I'm not from a military background. I was a grave digger until you guys showed up. So yeah. I want to consider this for a minute before I respond, which he did. He was almost <laughs> like Matthew was about to turn and leave. And then he says, shoes, sir. Oh, the boy was just looking for some shoes. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was really I mean, it was like going to a church or a symphony concert or something spiritual every day we worked on. It, it was a lot of hard work, yeah. but everybody pitched in. And, you know, I, there were no regrets, you right. know. And the other thing that I think made working on Glory a little easier than working on dances,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we shot in Georgia, right? Well, Jason, yeah. everybody in Georgia can cook.
0: Ah, oh, that's almost, a perk
1: yeah. Almost nobody we ran into in South Dakota could cook. I mean, not to my liking. So if we hadn't had four stars catering, right? you know, on, on, on set in South Dakota, I think the best food I had for the ha- first half of the show was Dairy Queen. <laughs> after we got to rapid city where we were shooting all the stuff of the winter camp. Then we had real restaurants with yeah. tablecloths and things like that. Yeah, but yeah. in Pierre, South Dakota, which is the capital yeah. uh, back then it, it it was, I mean, well, I'll put it this way. If you like snake yeah. or beefalo yeah. or that kind of stuff, you'd yeah. be fine. But if you wanted to be a fish eater yeah. or vegetarian, you,
0: you yeah. pickings were kind of slim. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move fully to, to dances. Um, just a couple more points on, on glory sound yes. wise. Yes. Cause that's what, that's your bag, baby. Right. Sound. Two scenes come to mind. Okay. Inspirational. Oh my Lord. Right. right, lord. right. <laughs> but then the horrific, the teardrop, yeah, the yeah. wit, the cracking of the whip. Right. For Denzel, his, his scene that won in the Oscar. Let's Absolutely. face it. Absolutely. So any memories of recording those moments?
1: Yes. And let's, let's go with your second uh, part first. So the whip is all post-production yeah. because when we, uh, meaning when, uh, The cast member, John, John Finn, who is excellent Mm. in that role, excellent as the Irish drill sergeant. When he's putting the whip on Denzel, that whip, it wasn't even like newspaper hitting you. Right. You know, because you really don't want to injure your actor.
0: But that shows how he can act. That was acting. And see,
1: I was so far back because my my once I realized that we had uh, video assist, which I found out uh, a few weeks ago from uh, a CBS show that video assist was an innovation of Jerry Lewis. I never knew that. Me neither. I had never heard that before as many times. I mean, (laughs) all these video assist monitors, and for those of you who might not know uh, that, you can actually see the camera's angle. So for someone like me, hiding microphones Mm -hmm. or microphones hanging over actors' heads, it's critical that I see how wide the frame is. And matching the distance from the actor's lips to, you know, the size of the frame is key. So that made my life easy. And since I started in TV, that meant I could, as long as I had video and audio, I could be in the next county.
0: Video Village. You know what I'm
1: saying? Be part of the team, right? But I didn't see that tear until I saw it on the big screen. Uh, Okay, so now let's go to to the prayer meet. The prayer meet is something that I always talk about when I, if I do any kind of presentation on glory, I always play that scene. Then I said, okay, so this is what happened. In the script, there is no music, there. there is no singing, it's just them doing their testimony in front of the tree. Uh, it's not till we get out of the crew van and Ed rushes over and says, Russell, Russell, they worked at this great little routine and they're going to sing a cappella. And every, every word he says after that, I'm getting more and more depressed. I'm like, okay, well, I said, Ed, you realize that usually when you do music in production, we have pre recorded it so that we can lip sync like music videos, which were standard by then, have always done and continue to do. So whether the actors actually can stay on pitch and stay on tempo is not a question anymore (laughs) because we already have a locked recording of them. So we had to essentially create a playback track from the first master shot that went from beginning to end. And then the only thing I could do was take that, one Nagra and play in the lead singer's ear what he did on the master shot. So it, it would at least start gotcha. on pitch and on tempo. But then the longer the take goes, and you actually hear you go back and listen to it, I think right before Jimmy Kennedy, who was the soldier that stuttered, right before he comes up, you can hear it modulate. Uh. And that's basically because coming into his shot, they took one version of the song, and coming out of the master, they took another one, gotcha. and you can hear one go to the other. And uh, the post-production mixer says that's 100% complete production sound, because they couldn't do anything with it. Yeah. Uh, the one mistake I made when we filmed that, and, um, and it was something that I had encountered before, but because we had so many balls in the air, and it was like, totally unexpected, is that in the foreground, there's a person playing tambourine. Uh, so yeah. generally speaking, we would al- always silence those little cymbals. So you see this tambourine moving back and forth, but you don't hear right. it. So now they can put that in in post because they said, now we're locked into his beat. Right. Yeah. Luckily, he could mostly keep time. Yeah. <laughs> but if you wanted to slew or slide that audio forward or backward, you were kind of locked into those yeah. cymbals. So I said, okay. But uh, it didn't prevent us from getting the statuette. The post-production mixer, Donald O. Mitchell, I always have to send out a shout to him. That was his twelfth nomination. He was up for two Oscars that same year. He was also up for Black Rain. Oh, wow. So now, Jason, imagine. Okay, so it's already nerve-wracking enough that, you know, you've sat through a few different categories. I think yeah. we were maybe ten or eleven that year, right? It's uh, a long show. It's a long, <laughs> it's a long show. And so then the way that they read the winner, they don't say for glory mm-hmm. first. They read the names. Mm-hmm. So they say Donald O. Mitchell. So he's off to the stage like a bat out of hell. <laughs> but we don't know for which movie yet.
0: Oh, and wow. And not only right. that,
1: there were two Gregs On oh. the Black Rain crew, there was a Greg P. <laughs> Russell, who I think now is a 17-time 17, 17 mm-hmm. nominee. Wow. And then on, the, on our team was Greg C. Rudloff. And so, Russell, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, so a Greg and a Russell. So, so here's here's Greg, and then we're like, "See Rudloff." We're like, "Okay, that's us." What's yeah. that moment
0: like? Are you? <laughs> Can you even
1: remember it, or yeah, is it I just a blur? It. I remember it, and yeah. and it was it was like your heart, your whole respiratory system comes to a halt, and then you hear that name, but then we realize, okay, that's us. So there's a sigh of relief, and then we, we kind of have to negotiate our way through the aisle. We, that, that year, the Oscars were at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. So Donald's already up on stage. We've already agreed by him having this as his 12th nomination that he was going to speak. No, no two ways about it. Right. So we, He's the overdue yeah, guy. Yeah, please. And we hadn't prepared anything. Yeah. And and so he got through his speech in about 15 seconds. Then I, next thing I know, he's looks he looks over his left shoulder at me and he says, jump in there. And I did, but I didn't. You know, I said I'd like to say thank you to all the home people in the home countries. You know, I was I was yeah. glad that I was able to do that, but I didn't like once I look at the tape. Being a sound guy, that I was leaning into the microphone. And <laughs>
0: Only I was thinking, you would and critique was, yeah, yourself on that. <laughs> and I was thinking, okay,
1: dummy, if you ever get back, stand up straight. I had no clue that i was going to come back the very next year you
0: did get back so okay so when you look at the second video i'm standing up straight dances with wolves you're standing all right cool what's uh before we get into the oscar moment itself for dances with wolves okay let's go into the movie um how do you how do you get hired for that job after after glory well
1: let's let's talk about a word that may or may not be in effect in hollywood these days a word called loyalty Ah. So let's go, back to, let's go back to Phil Robinson. The only reason I get to feel the dreams is that when the Gordon Brothers, who might not be a household name to some of you all, but the Gordon Brothers are the ones who created the Die Hard franchise. Right. Right? You may have heard of it. May have heard of it. May have actually seen one or two yeah. of them, right? Or five. Or right. six. <laughs> and so, so we had worked on Phil's first movie, not the Gordon Brothers, but myself and the rest of the entire crew for that, for that matter had worked on his first movie uh, called In the Mood. Mm-hmm. And when he got the, the, the go-ahead from the Gordon brothers, not only for the screenplay but also to direct, he said on one condition, and that condition was that I get to hire all of my crew from my first film back. Nice. So that gets me on field. On field, that gets me working with Kevin. Kevin, and that's the connection. So then Kevin, once he gets this project that he's directing and also starring in, he takes someone from all of his other films. So he took transportation, I think, from do- full dorm. He took sound uh, from Field of Dreams. He brought script supervisor also from Field of Dreams. He brought... He'd done what? Untouchables uh, at that yeah, point? Un, un, yeah, and No Way Out. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. so again, that's loyalty. It's like people who we had a good relationship with because, you know, when you're working on your first project, you don't want to have to remember a lot of names and kind of get used to how all these different people work. So... And, and and the other thing I really loved about working with Kevin on field and on dance is he had his family around almost the whole time, oh, meaning cool. his wife and his kids, but also his mom and dad. Oh, that's awesome. And when you meet his mom and dad, you you see where that salt of the earth kind of, <laughs> you know, Kevin Costner, yeah. you know, character comes from. He's, he's really just a blue collar guy yeah. that's in a white
0: collar industry. But yeah. he, I mean, but he was, you know, a, a huge movie star at the time, but this was his first his directorial debut, right? Right, so, right. Talk about sort of was it? What was it like? Sort of watching that growth happen. Were there moments? Um, I I, remember, I know you've told me stories before about you shoot everything this way, yeah, then you yeah. turn around and everything. Right, this way. right. Was it? Were there any sort of like growing moments um, where you, where you saw him sort of dealing with those first time challenges and then watching him overcome to to win gods of Oscars? You know, what was that like?
1: Yeah, I mean, because I I think that he was he was very smart in how, uh, you know, when when you have a big film screenplay. I don't know if your audience appreciates the fact that in most cases we almost never shoot this in Mm -hmm. story continuity, like you would rehearse a play. Shot out of order. It's completely shot out of order. It's basically location availability or actor availability. So since we pretty much own (laughs) the state, light availability. (laughs) (laughs) Since we pretty much own the state of South Dakota while we were out there, so what he did in scheduling the movie is that at the beginning of the shoot. He only did the scenes where he is in the movie. So it's kind of like him coming across the prairie, him discovering Fort Sedgwick. And then I want to say early on we did the scene where he gets assigned, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, the the task of going out to the prairie. So so then we started the process of adding a few Native American actors in. So I want to say wind in his hair uh, discovers you know, the fort. And and so he slowly built up to the larger scenes and, you know, the the, the, the buffalo hunt, which we actually ran, I want to say, 5,000 head oh. of buffalo. And that was the first time since the 19th century that they'd had that type of run. Uh, the one thing that made it difficult is that. Generally speaking, if we're shooting, say you and I having this conversation in the studio, so you're on one side of the room I'm on the other, so we would start with a wide shot of you and then come into a medium shot of you, then we come to a tight shot of you, and then we turn the camera and the lights around and we do the same thing looking in my direction. So Kevin, for some reason, had to do wide this way, wide the other way, medium this way, medium the other way. And so that, I would say, contributed to the movie going over schedule. Uh. But as long as he felt comfortable that the performances on camera were going to cut together, then that's the way we did it. And other, another tribute to Kevin's commitment to this film, and I'm fairly sure this, this is accurate, that whatever our uh, contracted end date was, I want to say it was probably the end of September or October of that year, the day after that, any overage came out of his pocket. Oh, wow. So I, I, I'm fairly sure a lot of the money that we pocketed for the next month and a half or so of shooting came from his profits from Bull Durham and other residuals. Right, right. You know, and maybe he had other investors on the side. A great producer in Jim Wilson. Uh, again, another stellar director of photography, Dean Simler. You know, mm-hmm. so I would worked with a English gentleman, mm-hmm. Freddie Francis, on Glory, and an Australian gentleman uh, for... Dances and I mean, it it really was the hallmark of teamwork.
0: Yeah,
1: because you can get some cameramen who feel that the whole movie is about picture and everybody else's department is secondary.
0: And these guys were complete team players. You know, speak a little too how Dances with Wolves sort of what was so great about it, and obviously it won Best Picture and everything. What was so great about it was it sort of showed a different side to the Old West. We've right. seen you know yes. where where the Comanches are, are the evil ones hunting right. John Wayne and you know all those old movies, but this showed you know the the Native American sort of plight of it, and it's almost I mean there have been old movies Broken Arrow and stuff, but um, you know it's it's interesting that it almost took till 1990 to get something that ma- mainstream, but. Um, talk, speak sort of to that um, because in a way, glory, you showed a, another side of the Civil War. Right, absolutely. This you're showing another side of the frontier. So right. speak sort of to, to how important that
1: is. And, and and I think that um, even and even Jason, while we were just in the pre-production stage in South Dakota, there was a lot of grumbling uh, in the state about okay, you know, why is this movie going to highlight what the Native Americans did? You know because you know if you grew up watching westerns the native americans were the enemy universally so this film really pointed out that okay yeah yes there's western expansion and yes you know the pioneers and the settlers were moving their way west and and so the america we know now is a, as a result of that but the thing that i think that the movie pointed out was that okay so even among even within the Native American community, there were enemies, Yeah, you know, which, which, which we showed. I mean, there were peaceful nations and there were warlike nations. But, you know, one of the things that I think the film really pointed out is that the Native Americans were already into con- conservation of resources. We only kill what we're actually going to eat or yeah. use for, you know, clothing and wardrobe or shelter. We're not just going to slaughter for slaughter's sake. And then I, I think that the... Attitude of the cavalry, you know, that came later uh, in the movie was was fairly typical of the fact that I mean, in their military posture, they had to assume that Native Americans are the enemy. Mm-hmm. So they hadn't really had the experience that Kevin Costner's character had to see them as human beings, raising families and wanting the same thing for their kids mm-hmm. and you know, in their community as you would want for yours. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that Michael Blake's screenplay was was amazing just on paper. Man. I mean, and because I almost turned that film down, Jason. You because, almost turned down dance I mean oh. I, just, I was just outside for like four and a half, five months on Glory, True. and now I'm going to do another exterior. Civil War era yeah, exterior. Right, exterior. <laughs> which I'm like, okay, here's the aggravation factor again. You know, long days. And I think we started in July. So the prairie is hot as heck in July. Yeah. And then by the time we got to November, I was in full duster. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, what is it, a resistol hat, got my first pair of cowboy boots on one of the scouts because I had scrupulously avoided any Western wear while I lived in L.A., especially after Urban Cowboy came Right, right Everybody right, started right. acting like they were, you know, breaking steers and stuff. <laughs> but once you step on a cactus that's about this tall and it goes right through your Nikes, it's like, okay, yeah, cowboy boots.
0: Yeah, I get and, it now. <laughs> and then
1: you come back, even as an African-American with sunburn on the back of your neck from wearing baseball caps, you realize on the prairie there are no trees, there is no shade. So you have to bring your shade with you. Right. And then a few months later when the wind started to really kick up, all of a sudden, here's the duster, baby. <laughs> you know, uh, like like Once Upon a Time in the West. I yeah, said, man, yeah. I said, Sergilion. so once I got back from that movie, I said, you can call me Dakota now, all right?
0: <laughs> Do you still go by that ever? Uh, uh, only, people, only
1: for people that know yeah. me from that film. <laughs> but now from a technical point of view, Dancers was almost the easiest film I worked on in the sense that we were so far out in the middle of nowhere that there were no... 20th century sounds that wafted into the track, right? which in glory, we were always kind of like at the edge of Savannah and, you know, so traffic, and they were also working on the bridge, you know, so, and Freddie, Freddie Fields was very cognizant of that. In this movie, Jason, I got overflown by one airplane in the entire time I was out there and it was a B-1 bomber. Wow. And it was at altitude. Yeah. That was it. No no doctors flying around on the weekend to kind of show their kids, you know, the great prayer. Well, our pra- listeners
0: don't appreciate that yeah. enough. That, so, you know, the, an airplane'll, you know, screw yeah, I mean, with what you're doing. Yeah,
1: especially when you're doing a period piece. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, well, there were no airplanes in that period yeah. of history, right? There weren't any even any motor vehicles to speak of. <laughs> so the so
0: union's th- advantage was the railroad. Right, exactly. <laughs> no no plane. <laughs> right? yeah. So
1: so that so that actually made and the other thing that was amazing is um, you could be almost a city block or more away from somebody and still hear normal conversation on the wind. Wow. So when you see those scenes of the Native Americans and all, even the old bad Westerns, yeah. you know, listening to the wind and they can say oh, there's two riders approaching yeah. or ten riders approaching, that's that's not an exaggeration. I was amazed. I was like, wow. wow. I said, who's that
0: talking? I said, I can actually hear them, you know, because there's nothing competing with you. Wind in his hair has dialogue in his hair. Really? Wow! Right? wow. So that's that's legit. <laughs> that's yeah. legit, man. That's pretty cool. You know, all right. Take so Oscar experience. Part, okay. Part do. Okay. You now you're going as a winner. Okay. So do you walk in a little taller. <laughs> <laughs> hey man. Or is it? And you're sitting there and you hear your name called again. It's still just as special.
1: It, it's it's a special because this time. Well, first of all, unfortunately, Don didn't get nominated because he he always does great work. Mm. But we don't have competing people on two different crews, okay? Right. So I don't have to worry about that. Um, and for me now, it's – even though everybody else had said I was going to win a second time, I said, there's absolutely no way. There's no chance. And it's almost the same type of movie. I said, there's no way. And each year there were great movies up against us uh, yeah. from in the sound category. But the fun, a funny that thing – That year you had Goodfellas yeah, and, yeah, man, I mean, oh. oh. You know, it's like so, – so a funny thing happened uh, – for your 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 listeners is that so the abc camera people have a seating chart so obviously the actors are usually in the first two or three rows and you have directors and then you have writers and so as you go deeper and deeper into the auditorium we know where the say the documentarians are sitting the sound people so after the commercial break and and Two of the best things about both of those years were those were Billy Crystal's first two years. Oh wow! And you the talk, best Oscar host ever. Trust me, he knows how to work a room. <laughs> it felt like you were like in his living room, and he was just telling jokes for his family. Wow! So as in the commercial break, the ABC cameraman comes up the aisle and he starts pointing towards our section because this is where the sound people are sitting. Yeah. And then when they say uh, Jeffrey Perkins, who's our lead mixer, yeah. I know that's us. There's no like waiting to hear the second or third name. So I stand up. So the cameraman is not expecting the person standing right next to him yeah. to stand up. And so from my TV background, I see him racking focus. And I also notice that that red light on the camera called a tally light is not on. Mm. So I just stand there. And once he's me. he's ready and I see that light come on, now we take the entire walk <laughs> all the way up to the stage. And then my when I get to the stage, I notice that, my post-production compadres—they're still in the aisle, glad handing. They're yeah. still, you know, working their way through the people. So, of course, I have to speak. Yeah. And as Donald O. Mitchell did for me the year before, as soon as the post-production mixers got up there, I did my speech in about 15 or 17 seconds, and yeah. I threw it yeah. through the lead mixer, who was also celebrating his birthday that day. Oh wow! You know, so Happy it was. It was. Yeah. But let me let me tell you one thing that's majorly different from people who win these days than in our day. Uh, because it's probably the <clears throat> most ridiculous question i have ever heard anyone ask.
0: Let's hear It's
1: <laughs> when you win your statuette. Now, this is the first year. You win your statuette, uh, and when you g- go immediately off stage, there's a table of statuettes. Right. And an Oscar, I'd rather an Academy member who writes the number off the back of your statuette on a list so they will always be associated with your name. Then they ask you this question. They don't do this anymore because they fixed this. Uh, Well, would you like to leave your statuette with us tonight and then in a couple of weeks when we put the (laughs) badge on, you come up and pick it up? Uh, at, at you know at, at the office, yeah. and I'm like, no, no. <laughs> engrave it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll take it now, and yeah. then when the badges come in, you can yeah. come down to the office and have it affixed. <laughs> yes, yeah. you know. So now they actually have the machine yeah. there on site, yeah. and I'm saying now they've probably had that for a few years now. But I was like, what? I just got the thing, and you want me to give it back? How am I getting in the parties? You know, without yeah. this, without this, baby, yeah. I can. I'm yeah, I, yeah. I'm an Oscar winner. Yeah. Where's your Oscar? Well, I, 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 I
0: this is my my badge of honor right here. Yeah,
1: this is my American Express card. Don't leave home. <laughs> Don't without. leave home without okay. it.
0: That's all. Well, it's interesting because yeah, because I went out and, and covered the Oscars you, this yes, year. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, Leo gets it engraved backstage right. and all that. Yeah. But um, it's interesting. I mean, let but I want to go to your other movies. Maybe we can rapid fire because we've been in here a bit. But hey, man. <laughs> um. Hey, we could talk all day about this. But um. Talk about you know uh, you said those Oscar days versus nowadays. What's your take on, on this past year when I was out there? The Oscar so white hashtag was right. was the big was the big thing. What what's been your take on that whole scenario? Well,
1: and and I'm and I'm glad that we can put this out in the open because the process and I think the only way the per a person not in the industry could conceivably understand this process. This process is very opaque. In a sporting event, not only do you know what team or what individual won, but you also know the score. It's clear cut. It's clear <laughs> Everybody
0: cut. Everybody saw it. <laughs> so
1: we don't know. In other words, I don't know whether, for example, whether I won by one vote or mm-hmm. by 100 votes. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the only time you really know something of the number is when there is an actual tie. Other than that, you have no idea. You'll never know. Mm-hmm. Only Price Waterhouse knows. So – also, think of how many people have had great sporting careers but don't end up in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. So the Academy is essentially a Hall of Fame. Its real role, even though they want to change its image, but their, its real role traditionally had been to keep people out until they had achieved a certain amount of professional and artistic status. Wait. So that's number one. Number two, I want to say last year in typical years, you have more than 300 films that are eligible to be considered in all categories, mm-hmm. and say if those 300 films had at least 10 actors. Mm-hmm. So that's 3,000 acting roles that have to be whittled down to 20 nominations. Yeah. Okay, so just mathematically, it's really hard to get nominated, it's even harder to win, but if you don't get nominated, you have no chance of winning. Uh, the other misconception I think that, where the Oscars So White tag comes in, it it. To me, it also smacks that you're saying that these people aren't talented. They just got nominated because they were white. Mm. Uh, no, nobody said white men can't act. They may have had a movie called White can't Men Jump. Can't Jump. <laughs> but, you know, I, I've seen a whole lot of serious. And then I also have seen a lot of white folks yeah. who put in great performances and don't get nominated either. I mean, uh, and, and we can either go recently, like say Vincent's one of my favorite Tom Hanks movies you know, Captain Phillips, yeah. in the other year, he's he's up there with his tux on.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Robert Redford that same year. Yeah. I mean.
0: Oh, for when he was out, All is Lost. All is Lost. Are and Tom kidding? Hanks is doing that, that same reason, shock at oh, the please. end of Captain Phillips. <laughs> oh, please. Okay. But, <laughs> right. I mean, but I get it. He'd now, won before. Yeah, but, yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay, so here's the other part. So now, the movie industry is a business, mm. and all those 300 films that came out last year, the, the ones that were aimed at an African-American or other ethnic audiences weren't that many. Mm-hmm. And there were maybe only three of them that were uh, what we would call Oscar bait. Right. So Concussion, definitely straight yeah. out of Compton. Creed. And Creed, right? And so, you know, nominations here and there, but again, right. it, it, there's, no real, there's no real rhyme or reason, but now this is what I know about the Academy in general, regardless of ethnicity. My years as a member, which started back in 1990, the Academy tends to always take the softer option. Oh, yeah. You know, so like one of my years I point to would be the year Inception was out, but the King's Speech wins Best best Picture. Now, to me, the Academy should be pushing the art form forward. Yeah. And trust me, there's nothing wrong with the King's speech. It's yeah. very solid, very well acted, yeah. you know, but the Brits do this day in and day out. I right. mean, most of these British actors come out of the womb right. reciting Richard Third. <laughs> okay? You know, so there's nothing, to me, there's nothing groundbreaking about the film. It's just right. a really well-done film. Right. Whereas Inception, I mean, yeah. the script, the yeah. visual effects, even the acting, I mean, so... It happens all the time. I mean, you know, and I mean, I mean, so if you don't want, if, if Inception mystified you, then how about yeah. The Fighter? Yeah. Hell of a film that same year. Yeah. Okay, let the Brits honor the Brits, you know, if
0: <laughs> you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. It's like, because the King's Speech won the Baptist as well. Well, this,
0: what is this? King's Speech is 2010, I yeah, think? Yeah, yeah, something like, yeah. Yeah. And, or... Black Swan, Social Network, yeah, and then yeah. King's Beach wins. You know? Yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, so, so, and so then,
0: <laughs> so the year that Glory doesn't even get a Best right. Picture nomination. Well, Do the Right Thing was the, yeah. you know, boundary breaker, and that right. doesn't win. It yeah. goes to Driving Miss Daisy, right. the safer pick. It pit. goes to yeah. Driving Miss Daisy, yeah. you know.
1: So both yeah. of them about race relations, right. but one group of uh, guys has bayonets, have bayonets in their hand, the yeah. other guy has a steering wheel in his hand. Yeah. Uh, same, same with uh, when Cooper Gooding wins for, um, uh Jim Jerry Maguire, to me, that's the year Samuel L. Jackson should have won for Time, Time to, to Kill. To kill yeah. No one is going to prevent you from taking a wheelbarrow full of money and a certificate of insurance and making as many films as you want. See, So that's where we are now. If you don't mind taking your own risk telling your stories, and I think that paradigm not only ensures that you get to tell the story you want to tell. Mm-hmm. So that's part one. The, the part two is that it has to be supported, and also, of course, the Academy members have to see it which means that you have to be willing to pony up at least another $2 million to make sure we get all of the Academy screeners.
0: Is that what happened to Selma? Didn't they like not get the screeners out they, to everybody? They
1: didn't get the screeners out to the Screen Actors Guild okay. nominating committee, and I don't know if it was just them or the general body. This is a great movie. It it was, and, 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 and it still is a great movie. And yeah. so the other, the other challenge, which I think also uh, people outside the industry may not have understood because— well, they said that the the movie got slighted, but if Best Picture is the highest award you can garner, right. it did get a Best Picture nomination. I think right. it's much. it would be much harder for Ava DuVernay or any woman to get a nomination out of that directing branch. I
0: hate to say that. We still going to knock that barrier down. That's... That
1: barrier is, is harder and higher than just about any of the others in the Academy. Wow. So for Catherine Bigelow to be the first woman after all these years of great films directed by right. women, you know what I'm saying? So... Uh, A long so, way to go on that one. So hopefully with with the additional members, and, and they actually took the cap off of how many members they can add per year, so that may help. I'm not sure about brooming out the older members if that is completely the right way to go. Uh, because one of the things I remember while I was still working daily in the business mm-hmm. is that if I was also part of the Foreign Language Committee and – if you're working on a film, you're not working usually eight-hour days and going home. Right. You might be working 12, 15-hour days. And so who else has time to go see all those films right. except for some of the members who are retired from active you know? So film that's work. the
0: argument why the, old, the veteran older yeah. older. I viv- mean, so,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and also the fact that anybody with a permanent tan or a different ethnicity <laughs> could win an Oscar is due to white votes. Mm. So everybody in the Academy can't be a bigot. Right. You know, and, and and the other thing that you wouldn't know by being unless you're in the room is you should hear how some of the uh, members just lambast some of these films. I mean, I heard uh, my wife and I were just amazed at one of the members. We went to see um, The Revenant. Oh, I yeah. want to say we saw it at CAA and then we saw it again on the Fox lot. And this one gentleman just he just trashed his film like like it was like it was. Some low-budget stinker, you know, yeah, from yeah. somebody's film school, and I was like, "Wow, <laughs> wow!" I mean, and he wasn't just yeah. going after Leo. This is he, the reigning direct, yeah, best yeah, director, best director, Alejandro. And I'm like, Are "You kidding me?" Yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah. but, it, but yeah. it's just amazing how diverse. That's the a polarizing opinion. movie, story-wise, yeah. I guess, but yeah. visually, come on, yeah, I mean, come yeah. on, look. I mean, for yeah. at first, and then, and then, I love Leo's work anyway. It's yeah. like, what? So he had to get eaten by a bear three, <laughs> three times to get his Oscar. <laughs> I think, I think the year that. That was most difficult for him, and as a voter, when he had Blood Diamond and Departed yeah. out in the same year. So, 06. which one do you vote for? Yeah, because so you think
0: it split the vote? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, which one do you vote for? Yeah. And 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 both the entire Academy would have to vote for both of them in order for him to, to edge out the other roles.
0: It's almost like one of those where you wish it was like when the very early years of the Oscars when they awarded a person for their whole year's yeah, body of yeah, work. Yeah, I'm yeah. talking like the first couple of years. Yeah, exactly. Then, yeah. then know, he would have won probably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, it's well, funny you, how it works. What do you have to do? You know, I mean. So, so uh, correct me if I'm uh, misunderstanding you, but I'm, it sounds almost like you're saying that the problem is less within, you know, voters, you know, maliciously not, you know, snubbing something, and more in the wider representation of what gets whittled down in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely mathematically
1: more difficult. But, again, if you want to, in my opinion, if you want to win an Oscar, uh, as an Oscar voter, I'll tell you myself, when I'm in the movie theater seeing something for the first time, I want to be transported, okay? So there was one actor who was... uh, In a film uh, this past year, who has been nominated two other occasions, and on those two other occasions, he put in much stronger performances. Are we allowed to say who it is? Yeah, Will Smith. Oh, okay. We remember. Now, I might not be able to tell you every film I saw in a calendar year, but I can tell you I thought he was much better in Ali. Yeah. He got nominated. Okay. Pursuit of happiness. I <laughs> thought he was much better in pursuit of happiness. He yeah. got nominated. He was even much better to me in I am Legend. Yeah. He didn't he get a nomination. That movie. but I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, you saw a side of Wilson. Yeah. You saw some depth in will yeah. in that situation. I was like, wow. So
0: you, that's what people got to remember. You're not just comparing off that year's crop. You're comparing right. off your own votes and everything you remember right. each of those you people. Know, in
1: and and you know, and then yeah. I also am old enough to remember um, that because again, too many. Folks may think that this has something to do strictly with you having a permanent tan. It's like, well, uh, Hitchcock doesn't have an Oscar yeah. on his mantle. Yeah. How is Life that? Life achievement
0: possible? was all he got. You he know, never won for director. How is that? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> He's uh, Mr. Director.
1: Me? I mean, Paul Newman. It took him to the yeah. color money. So you're yeah. telling me, Hud? Yeah. You're telling cool me. Cool Hand Luke. Cool Hand Luke. Hustler. The verdict. Butch Cassidy. What? Oh, the verdict is so good. The verdict. Yeah. I mean, and, you, and, and, and at that stage in his career, mm-hmm. I mean, when he finds out that his girlfriend is playing, Charlotte Rampling is playing for the other side, I mean, yeah. the look on his face yeah. is almost as bad as when Al Pacino finds out that Fredo was the (laughs) traitor and i mean it's like that punt you could feel him get punched in the gut i mean see that's what i'm looking for jason i'm look i want to i want to be torn apart and put back together when i'm watching you on the screen yeah okay and you know sometimes the movie's better than the actor performances individually and sometimes the The actor carries the film you know so there's a lot more in the calculus than i think that meets the eye so uh, I've had people argue with me, well, there should be, should be, should be. I say, okay, so you're telling me you want to go back to black baseball or do you want these athletes to win the uh, World Series ring? Right. Do you want to go back to the black football championship or do you want to have a Super Bowl ring? You know, so we have one playing field, one standard. Yeah. Okay, not saying that any other group that wants you to give you, an, give you an award shouldn't be giving these awards. I'm fine with that. Right. But my goal was to... Was to be the best, whatever that meant, and it's 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 again, Carl uh, Malone, eighteen great seasons in the NBA, no ring, no ring for the mailman. Okay, drop so, it in the mail. So so what so what are you going you going <laughs> right. to indict the entire NBA for that?
0: He just was going against Jordan. You know, you're it, going against Daniel Day-Lewis. You know what what I mean? are you going to do? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So so sometimes, and I'm and I yeah. hey,
1: like I'm the first to tell you,
0: right.
1: you can do great work, and then you also do need some luck. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, what?
0: You, you need some luck with the right timing. Yeah.
1: right timing. So again, this year I don't I don't think that that's going to be a problem in terms of the Oscar so white because yeah. beyond Birth of a Nation there's so many really good performances that yeah. have yet to hit the screen, some of them have already been out. So I'm fairly sure that we're going to have a diverse group of nominees, but again, if we end up with yeah. a completely diverse academy in the years yeah. to come and we have another year where we have 20 nominees that are all white now what
0: yeah
1: is it because they were actually the 20 best performances yeah, yeah. Or, you know I'm saying yeah. so I, I you know I'm as a member and I'm not speaking as an I'm not speaking as a representative of the academy I'm just yeah. speaking as a voting member Is like I see the arguments on both sides yeah and uh, and I, and I think it really comes down to you have to have a pretty mean horse to win at the end of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, for the years I tried to say... You gotta say, be secretariat, Yeah, baby. I mean, I, I, for you, look, for years I tried to say every time Meryl Streep got nominated, said, oh, man, again, again, again. <laughs> but I'm sorry. She delivers. Right. I'm sorry. Every, and, I, and I mean, this is... And I'm telling you, I tried to say right. she was overrated. She <laughs> proved me wrong each time. So, like I said, maybe white men can't jump, you know, yeah. based on that movie title, but these folks can act.
0: It's such a fascinating conversation, man. Follow follow me mentally here. We're going to backtrack. Because okay. right. when you mentioned Michael Fredo, it sparked it. And right, we've right. been talking Denzel and stuff. So 2001, Denzel wins for training day, right? right and everyone's right. like, why do you have to go crooked to take it? Yeah, that was the Jadakiss right. yeah, song. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. But it's, he should have won in 92 for uh, for Malcolm X. But right, right. Pacino had to get it for Son of a Woman because right. he didn't get it for Godfather because right, right. Brando did. right? You know what I mean? So it goes on and on and on. It goes, but,
1: I mean, it, it, it's like I guarantee you uh, – on Oscar night, Emmy night, Grammy night, American Music Award night, BAFTA night, whatever I'm missing, uh, country music awards, they're always going to be more disappointed than anointed. Ooh. That's just the math. That's a good line. <laughs> it's, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, and, and I've been fortunate that of the nominations that I've had, I've only been disappointed once, and that would have been for my third Emmy for the Temptations miniseries. Mm. And not only was that a great project, but it was really great to work on and I really appreciated Suzanne DePass and her history at Motown and the details that we put into that. But, you know, hey baby, you can't yeah. win them all. Yeah. You know, I'm glad to be able to be in the history books. I'm glad that I can put my statuette someplace where more people will see them than the ones that traipse through yeah. my place. But, you know, I, I think that like sports. There are a lot of great careers in sports, and, and we know them. I'm, I'm sure the sports fanatics can recite these statistics a lot better than I can. And not everybody gets to that Hall of Fame. And essentially, that's what all of the academies have done. Now, people will say, well, look at the Tonys and look at the Emmys. and look." I said, yes, absolutely. And so now are we saying, because my question is, is Hamilton well, 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 well more a better play than much of what we've ever seen on the screen? You know, so don't just say that they want it because they had a diverse cast or whatnot or was it that the Tonys. No, that product right. was sensational. Right. Okay, so, you know, it's it's not as easy to make a film, a great TV show, a great play, and the attention to detail, and and you've got a lot of people like me, and you say if you were an Academy member, you'd be saying, yeah, that was good. I mean, but it did make my heart skip a beat. It's it's worth a nomination, but I don't know if it's going to clear. You know, right? Um, I mean, there's probably a better system somewhere, but this is the system we have. Right. You know, so all I say is, uh, you're not going to get there unless you persevere, hmm. and you need a little luck. No, yep. no two ways about it. And you got lucky two years in a row. <laughs> hey, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's like that. That I would no one would
0: have been able to convince me that that yeah. was going to happen. Definitely. Well, I know we've been gone. I think we've been gone like an hour, but. <laughs> Let's, so let's kind of more—it doesn't have to be one-word answers, but let's rapid-fire these. Okay. Guys, Just give me a memory of each of these. Spike Lee and Jungle Fever. Spike Lee, uh,
1: great crew, difficult shoot. Why is that? Well, not the <laughs> Here most— goes our not, <laughs> not, the, not the most cooperative director I've worked for. Oh, okay. Okay.
0: You're going to leave it at that? Leave no. it at that. Okay. Um, Boomerang with Eddie Murphy— Big fun. (laughs) Big, big fun. I mean, uh,
1: great cast, great crew. I mean, and what's not to like about five-day weeks in New York?
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, you know what I'm saying? And Paramount Films treated us all really good on that film.
0: That's awesome. It was
1: great working for Eddie, though. I mean, that particular show, Eddie was on top of his game, and we just had a lot of fun.
0: A lot of fun. <laughs> That's awesome. You and Eddie thanking uh, Jerry Lewis, right? My right. professor and Video <laughs> right, right. Village, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Ant- Antoine Fuqua and Denzel on Training Day. They come out M- magnificent seven this right. weekend.
1: Yep. Well, I- I'll say for directors that came from music videos, Antoine was probably one of the most prepared I'd ever worked with, and he had a book of storyboards that we all got at the beginning of the shoot. Right. So we always knew what was up. And that preparation paid off. No two ways about it.
0: What was it uh, before we move on? Denzel then versus Glory. I mean, you saw him as a young buck and yeah, then yeah, now as yeah. Mr. King Kong ain't got right, nothing right. on me. Did he I mean, do you guys reminisce about Glory on set or you know, or is it more just, you know, well, go to work.
1: The the thing the thing about Denzel is he comes to work in character. Mm. So there's not a lot of chit-chat.
0: You didn't want to mess with him. Then. No, and, and, and,
1: and so if I had to go to him for a technical reason, yeah. you know, first I'd make eye contact with him, and then I'd say, you know, i do a little hand signal saying I'm going to have to make an adjustment because yeah. I don't want to, you know, take him out of his zone. So we really didn't get to chat much about glory, but I'll tell you one thing for sure. He scared the real gang members on the set because oh, a lot right. of those guys in the background were real
0: people. They brought in, yeah, I remember. Yeah, they the they weren't, there, they yeah. weren't,
1: they weren't just extras with you know like yeah. press on tats. They were the real deal. That's so know.
0: cool. That's a great movie. Um, you, Billy Friedkin, who we <laughs> both saw at the Exorcist Steps, remember? I'm just cracking up. I'm calling him William Friedkin, and you're saying, "Hey, old Billy." Right, All right. right. Uh, rules of Engagement and TV version of Twelve Angry, Twelve Men, Angry right? Men. Which won you an Emmy?
1: I was so impressed working with Mr. Freakin, because first of all, of all the great directors I have had the honor of working with, he's the first one that invited me to the table read. And so he's got me on one side and the cameraman, the director of photography on the other, looking at his notes. So we already have a vision of what he wants to shoot. When we did Rules of Engagement, the other honor for me was also working with Richard Zanuck. I mean, you're talking about an Uber producer. And just to see Richard work his magic, and he said, as a producer and all you young producers out there, he said, he said Russell, says my job is to keep all the studio madness, the legal mumble jumbo and all this other business-related stuff out of my director's hair until he says that's a wrap. Then we can chit-chat about that at dinner afterwards. Mm-hmm. But while he's focused on the actors and the camera position, I'm there to backstop all this other stuff. Yeah. And I just I just wish I'd had more time to chit chat with him because uh, what a, what a class act, Billy. Uh, a lot of people think of Billy in his earlier days when he was probably a little bit more like more of a shouter. the ex- The experience I had with Billy was he would only shout at you if on the day mo because he called everybody mo. You had promised him something, and you couldn't deliver. So you better deliver. You, when Billy asks you a question, you better have an answer. Mm-hmm. So he wanted me to record uh, a local Moroccan group. Yeah, we were in Morocco, a local Moroccan group, and he was going to waft some of this music into the track. So he says, okay, Mo, how about my music? I said, Tuesday, 5 p.m. And now he's asking me that while he's got his hands in front of his face setting up a shot. It's got nothing to do with the music. He just looks to his left. How about my music, Mo? 5 p.m. Tuesday. Because I had seen a visual effects guy not have the answer uh, once, twice, third time, next day he was on a plane.
0: So that's why you were saying, hey, Mo, down at the Exorcist, yeah, and, that, and, I get it.
1: And <laughs> Mo came from, from the French Connection, oh. because the real cops at French Connection is based on called each
0: other Mo. Gotcha. So not he, Popeye. No. Popeye and Mo. <laughs> yeah, so he picked, he
1: picked that up from them,
0: from oh, the that, NYPD. That's fantastic. Well, we could sit and talk forever. I know we've we've gone on forever, but um, before you do go, I want to you know i do have to ask you okay how'd you get into american university that's where i met you when i was in grad school i don't think i I never had you as a professor but you were always around i know you know so you know how did that happen and why has it sort of been important for you to sort of give back in that way? okay
1: so the first time or the second time give me both okay so while i was a student at wilson some students from american walked down nebraska avenue and came to Wilson and talked to the student body about the opportunities at this college that was right up the street from us. And I hadn't really thought about American. I was, in my mind, going to Boston University. So after I applied to both and a couple other places and American said yes, then I kept looking at the weather reports in Boston. I said, no, let me stay home. <laughs> so then, Plus Terrence Mann was doing his yeah, thing yeah. up there. <laughs> you know, uh, I said, so, so then uh, as, uh, as my 20-plus years in L.A. were kind of coming to a close and a lot of the work that I was really interested in doing was going to Canada, uh, the then dean of American U, Larry Kirkman, mm. had come out to find some of his alumni, and we had lunch together, and i said you know what i wouldn't mind teaching i mean that's not what he pitched Mm -hmm. me with he pitched me with could i contribute to the curriculum somehow and i said yeah but on campus Mm -hmm. and so you know you wish and it's not his command but they put it in motion so i came back in 2002 and then when i took a look at the curriculum it was not that far away from what i was looking at in the 70s that we had great production courses Great writing courses, great fundamental stuff in journalism, but they weren't really that strong on the business of show. And to me, the business of show was also more, much more important. Graduating today than it would have been in the mid '70s, mm-hmm. and and I really just like working with the young people and seeing them yeah. pursue their dreams. And I always have people practice their Oscar speeches. I said, "No, no, no. Trust me, you're gonna, <laughs> you're going to have your opportunity. And so take." Take it from my mistakes and go up there and, and deliver. <laughs> deliver, That's okay? Great. So the fall semester, I usually teach film and video one, which is introduction, so not only camera work, sound, uh, some editing, but I try to impress upon my students, being you know a Hollywood veteran, that I'm there to show them how to get large format results with small format tools. Mm-hmm. Then I have a all-graduate course in the weekend program called um, Developing Fiction Films, which is all about raising money through equity investors and that sort of thing. And the spring a sound design course and another course called Executive Suite, which allows our alums primarily to Skype back into onto campus and talk about what's happening in various fields like television, music, film, uh, even web design. You know, anything that I think that uh, young, uh, soon to be, you know, uh, uh, Barry, uh what's, what's our, Barry, Barry Levinson, uh, you know, uh, of
0: the future needs to know about going into the business. And more than just a professor, a mentor and maybe even a producer for for an AU student, right? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, <laughs>
1: if the project is good enough,
0: I don't mind picking up the phone and see if I can make some
1: connections. Because to me, that was one of the whole reasons that the schools like the SCs, UCLAs, NYUs of the world have such a strong alumni base because they reach back and find new talent and they know exactly who to call and exactly how to put them in play. Hopefully they also can spot the the people who maybe not as serious as they need to be. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that working the Watergate hearing showed me was that that I could go the distance to go back to Field of Dreams because we were working 22-hour days, five days a week. Yeah. So if that's not enough to dissuade you from show business, there was going to be,
0: you know. and, it, and it also taught you to keep the tapes. Don't don't yeah, delete exactly. them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which,
1: which which brings me to an interesting point. I think, and I asked Oliver Stone about this, and he kind of said he wasn't sure. But if you go back and look at Oliver Stone's Nixon, there's a quick shot where it's supposed to be Alexander Butterfield. Oh, and by the way, trivia. I was working the control audio board the day Alexander Butterfield announced that we have the oh, wow. tapes of the president, because that was an NBC day. Wow. That okay. was by the time the, the hearings were only broadcast by one network at a time. Wow. And then after that revelation, every all three, all three of them <laughs> started to to carry it again. But wow. there's a little scene where you see he's got like four and Zach, or you heard, depending on because they all have the same frame, four recorders in a cabinet. And you see him taking the tape off of one of them. And as an archivist veteran from the Library of Congress, okay, so, yeah, Nixon erased the 18 minutes off the tape he had in his hand. But theoretically, there are two other copies. And I'm, I'm guessing, I don't have any, any information mm-hmm. one way or the other, but I'm guessing that Butterfield has that 18 minutes.
0: Oh, there was a copy. I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't yeah.
1: see him giving away all the copies for them to, you know, you know. That's I'm, fascinating. I'm, I'm fairly sure, <laughs> you know. I mean, this is just me from looking at the scene yeah. in the movie. I'm, right. that, to me, that's what the, because you have all of this conversation in the movie. Now, maybe it's all of what Oliver Stone wrote and has nothing to do with what with yeah. that 18 minute gap was really about. But I, you know, it's interesting. It's just like a one quick shot there, but it, it said, hmm. And some people say it spoke to me. <laughs>
0: You're always a curious mind, my friend. Hey, man, you know, (laughs) it's like I I think I think my
1: background as a music student really had me tuned into listening to cues. And even now, even though I haven't really done location work and what I've been back here now, 14 years, I still always hear what shouldn't be in the mix. Right. You know, so I I hear the buzzing over there behind you. And, (laughs) you know, when I walk into a classroom, I always hear the projector fan and things like that. Uh, it's you know so, but it could also save your life. That's why I also tell students, you know, take those earbuds out. At least take one of them out. Yeah. You know, because you'll never hear that bus is going
0: to run you over. You know. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: now, I'm walking
1: here. Yeah, I'm walking
0: here, baby. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's the perfect place. to Leave it, Russell. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure, man. Uh, guys, the 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 museum opens this weekend. Um, I know, I think you need tickets, but so if you can't get there this weekend, Definitely. go see it soon.
1: I, I would suggest you wait a few months because it's yeah. going to be a mob. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I know there's, like, a free uh, concert series that's free. Maybe go do that, but yeah. go to the museum yeah, a little bit. are
1: going to be a lot of people there this yeah. weekend. It's going to be Pandemonium. Not not the kind yeah. of the National Zoo. It's yeah. going to be Pandemonium. Oh, Pandemonium.
0: Yeah, I see yeah. what you did there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but once you do get there, check out the two Oscars and the NagrA right. <laughs> of uh, Mr. Russell Williams here. Thanks so much for joining us My on pleasure, TLP. Jay. This is great. My pleasure. After such an illustrious career, you can imagine his outrage when the Academy decided to remove eight categories, including Best Sound, from the live Oscars telecast this Sunday. Russell Williams, hey, thanks so much for joining us again on WTOB.
1: Jason, great to be back, man. Uh, You know, first of all, just happy to be alive after the horrendous couple of years we've been through as a nation and as a planet, and um, that hopefully... We may find our way back into the theaters, you know, maybe with some modifications from the old world, but I, I think people are really ready uh, to have a way of escaping the day to day grind and, and appreciate hopefully some good music, some good cinema, some good art, and, and just gatherings of human beings enjoying each other without worrying whether that contact is going to. Make someone's life either more difficult or terminated. We we know what I'm talking about. So the movies, young man, the movies.
0: I'm with you. I hope, I really hope the movies and movie going culture can come back and, and, uh, and, and not just with the superhero movies. That seems like the one genre that hasn't really been touched by any of this, but that's true. <laughs> I would love, I would love that, you know, for, for people to start going back to just, you know, the, the mid range or the, you know, the dramas and you just all, the movies of all different genres. Like, I, there's nothing like, as fun as it is streaming at home during these last two years in the pandemic, I, uh, there's nothing like going into, a room and the lights going down and all of us watching, you know, get out or a horror movie or a comedy or, you know, just the right, communal right. experience of laughing or shrieking or crying to get, you know, there's nothing like it. So I hope it comes back. Um, but we wanted to have you on, of course, uh, because the Oscars are coming up, and um of course, you are yourself a two-time Oscar winner from Glory and Dances with Wolves back in uh what 89 and 90 were, were those movies when they came out. But um, I wanted to talk to you because you won for for sound, and that is one of the categories that has been that the academy has decided to, to scrap. Um, they, they, they're getting rid of eight, uh, at least from the live televised They're they're getting rid of documentary short sound film, editing, makeup, and hairstyling live action, short original score, production design, and animated short. Those are going to be presented in like a a pre pre pre-broadcast and then edited to show in the show. So what, what was your initial reaction when you heard that were you sort of like, Hey, that's my category.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, first, first I ran to the, to the bathroom and threw up, (laughs) um, I, I call these categories this year the Irate Eight. <laughs> um, now, and 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 it's it's kind of like a tennis match, you know, when you would see people in the in, in the gallery and they're looking this way for the ball, and then you're looking back to the other side of the net for who's going to return the ball. So, you, you know, you read some of the stories. The producers of the show decided they were going to excise or trim the fat. That's not a quote, but that's essentially what. I'm reading this as, as, a, as a person who was a nominee and a winner. And then on the other side, uh, they're saying that maybe the word came down from the network, ABC owned by Disney. And then some other conversations say that the Academy, mem- the Academy leadership you know, kind of was also played a role in saying, well, we need to do something to increase the viewership shorten the time of the broadcast. And so they figured the best way of doing that is getting rid of some of the categories that either they assume what's slowing down the the show or the reasons people may tune out during the show. Uh, No one suggested that they take the president of the Academy speech, pre-tape it, edit it, and then run it as a package, because I'm sure you know, that's why everybody tunes in to see the Oscars. So no one suggested that that part of the show should go go south. But I feel uh, as one of the crafts who, who if, if things go as announced, will not be honored in the live show. I can't even imagine how that would look. So what does that mean? You go to an empty auditorium, you accept your award and you speak to a group of empty seats. So you're, you know, in my speeches, if you can find those links, you know, I'm actually pointing and gesturing and looking right at Kevin Costner where I say, you know, I want to thank Jim and Kevin, Jim Wilson, the producer for giving me the call, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and so they're not there. If if I'm, you know, lucky enough to be nominated and presenting this year, then it gets played back. Okay. It's not unheard of in other award shows though. I mean, the Grammys have done this for decades because they have so many more categories. The Emmys have done this for decades, because I mean they have two or maybe even three nights that they need to present all the awards. So of course, they if they had a live show, it would be like a marathon. It would be a 24-hour yeah. show to get everybody in. But I think the granddaddy of the entertainment industry awards, you know, which is coming up on a hundred years in a few, because this is 97, I believe. So we're getting we're getting close. Is this the 97? What what year is this?
0: For? Uh, let's look up. I know the first one was in 1927. So this will be this is the 94th. 94th. Okay,
1: so we're we're six years out from having the one the the hundredth anniversary of the Academy Awards, assuming that we can keep a television audience. All right, I'm I'm really concerned that um, they will start moving other categories around. You know, next year, they, you know, the the leadership says that it won't just be these eight every year. So who's it going to be next year? Are they going to drop cinematography? Are they going to drop supporting actor? I doubt whether any of the SAG categories would get dropped
0: exactly but, you you know they're not going to drop any of the yeah. actors and that that's why it just seems sort of disingenuous to say oh it's going to be on a rotating basis so yeah which 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 technical crafts do we want to screw over this year you know what i mean so i, I don't know on, on twitter on twitter there's been a um a hashtag that's taken off it's called present all 23 it's all you know all the hardcore oscar viewers say you know we want to present all 23 right. And, um you know I, I, you know as a journalist I I I, underst- I guess I understand both sides of the argument I understand if I'm going to devil's advocate I, I understand from a ratings perspective I think they're in record low ratings I understand you you're trying to move it along and, and get you know the categories that people quote unquote actually really tune in for but but I I, I ultimately come down on 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 your side Russell is I, I don't I don't think that necessarily people are tuning out because of those those categories i mean original score people would love to hear the john, john williams score and why are right. you cutting that um i personally i i think it's like what you're saying trim the other fat of you know the academy president speaking or or some of the the lame jokes where the host take leave the theater and, or, and go over to a movie theater oh, and right. all that yeah. Stuff. Yeah. it just yeah. it it gets too long and i i ultimately well what do you think i ultimately i think it comes down to this debate of um of are we trying to make a, a telecast that's going to be a big tent and bring in more people? Or, or are, we, are we catering to our really hardcore actual Oscar viewers? And I think, I personally think that that you're going to alienate the really hardcore viewers if you cut out these categories.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. The, the hardcore viewers and the folks who really know the inner workings of each craft and appreciate the fact that these names that we know, the big stars who give just awesome performances each year in different movies and different genres, you know, what? we wouldn't know any of their names without the technology that is needed to bring them to the screen. Now, they're all on soapboxes on the corner, you know, doing their performances. Okay, you don't need any technology, not even a megaphone right? But if you want to be in a TV series, which of course is the Emmys, if you want to be in a feature film, that means you need lighting, you need someone to to memorialize that image, we need to hear what they're saying, you need the score, you need all of that. I mean, look at the production design, say, of Nightmare Alley. I mean, you're saying that that's not important enough to, to be on the show and to, to see those people who put their lives into their respective craft, just like the people we see in front of the camera. I think the other reason that people, maybe the leadership, maybe ABC, Disney, uh, you know, we still have been in a pandemic posture. Yeah, I did get to go into some theaters or some studio screening rooms and see movies on the big screen, but for the most part we're still in a you know wait and see don't want to be in the crowds. Um, so the so the, the excitement about the the movie presentations or the cinema that got released was not is not the same as it was pre-pre-pandemic. So, you know, People have been sitting at home all year watching movies mainly streaming, and so the so how does the how does the Oscar broadcast really gin up the excitement? Uh, and you haven't had the opportunity in many cases to sit shoulder to shoulder with either friends or total strangers, and ooh and ah and oh, you know, and all the things as we were talking about that come, that go along with actually seeing cinema in its proper format. So. Um, the show definitely needs to be rethought, but it, it doesn't necessarily, I don't think it's fair to just start pointing at certain crafts and saying, well, you don't deserve to have your life's work that's been at least nominated by your peers, acknowledged by your peers and the rest of the movie going audience or as you say, the the people in the TV audience around the world, because a lot of these people want to be something other than an actor. And they would certainly like to see what it takes to be an Academy Award-winning film editor who won't be seen on the show. I mean, they say they'll be seen, but it's not going to be the same. I assure you, it won't be the same feeling as hearing the applause, walking up to the stage, standing there, uh, some very handsome, or beautiful person hands you the statuette, that you could have only dreamed about holding. Mm -hmm. Now you get to the lectern. I mean, if you go back and look at my glory acceptance, acceptance speech, there was no acceptance speech because I wasn't supposed to say anything. It just so happened that Donald O. Mitchell who was our lead mixer had the courtesy of getting his words out in 15 seconds and looking over his shoulder and saying, jump in there because we're already a category who they're gonna play off. Right. If you go over time. They're not gonna play you off if you're the lead actor receiving. You know, I mean they tried to in, in, in that in in, in the twenty twenty-one Oscars, but it didn't really work. They were like, No, no, you're not gonna play me off. <laughs> but the sound people, the documentarians, you know, you might get you might hear that theme music come in after 30 seconds, 35 seconds. So he was kind enough to get me in. And when I we won the next year for Dancing with wolves, I returned the favor and made sure that the gentleman standing behind me uh, got a chance to say something until the orchestra started playing. So, you know, we have families, we have people we went to school with, we have friends who like, hey, you know, we know these people, or that was my professor, or that was the person that I mentored and look, they're getting their own Oscar. So I I think it's important that the, the academy and the network find a way to keep the 23 categories live in person and on the air. Okay, they've, they fought for many years not to expand the amount of categories. You know, I really feel that the Screen Actors Guild Awards did the right thing by having a best ensemble category. Because, you know, if you have two or 300 movies a year that are eligible for nominations in various categories, and you have say 10 actors in each movie that's 2000 2500 3000 roles yeah that have to be whittled down to only 20 nominations whereas if you have an ensemble category that at least gives you the opportunity to award the, you know the cast as a whole and it actually really highlights more actors than you could than you could uh, acknowledge the way it is now right. but cutting out the other awards from the from the new show I really don't think is going to be a sustainable uh, move and then with names like James Cameron Spielberg uh, John Williams uh, even cinematographers Vittorio Duraro I mean they know that if they if they rotate these categories at one year they're going to be the category that doesn't get to accept on the live show. You know, it, it just like I said, I went to the bathroom and threw up first. And then I said, well, did I read actually see what I read there? You know, so um, I don't know. I, 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 I like you. I understand the pressure to get the numbers from Nielsen and keep the show moving along as entertainment. But I don't think getting rid of these A categories this year is going to make the difference that they're hoping. It's not like people go like, oh great, because they're not gonna have these eight categories. Right. It's gonna be a more exciting
0: show. Exactly. I think they're throwing out the baby with throwing out the baby with the bathwater because I think I I, I don't think it has so much to do with which categories they show. I I think it has lar- more to do with these larger societal forces of, of, you know, network TV ratings have dropped across the board. It's not just the Oscars. Sure. The, the Oscars are still one of the highest graded non-sports programs year in and year out. I think it just, when you, when you look at it on a graph, it looks like it's tanking, but but that's, I think, network television because of the is tanking all around because of the way streaming has changed. Everything's so splintered now. Everyone watches. you're never going to see the numbers that that Mash did on the finale. You know that that no, you're, right, you're never going right. to see that again. And and I feel but, like that I feel like you have TV networks panicking, saying, "Oh my gosh, Oscar ratings are falling so much." But I think it has more to do with ratings dropping across the board political forces uh, you know the political divisions are so heated and those those people that that say oh it's you know it's 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 elites patting themselves on the back they're not going to tune in because best sounds not in there you know it's more it's these larger forces i think that that's causing it more than anything plus a third component of that is i think we're every year we're seeing a more and more uh, a bigger divide between mainstream movies and, and art films they get awarded. Like back in the day, the big blockbusters I are mean, Rocky, Titanic, yeah, yeah, first yeah. up, used to win all the time. But I, ever since I think sequels have really taken off, we don't really you're not gonna award as many sequels. So yeah, I, I think there's larger forces at play than than what categories are being presented.
1: And and you know you know picking piggybacking on that, you know, there's not very much appointment television that the younger generations right. are really interested in. You know, and as you say, you know, yeah, we're talking the Super Bowl, okay. Those are some numbers that, depending on the teams, but generally speaking, they stay much higher than anything else in terms of appointment TV, yeah. and of course, the ad revenue generated on that day is usually much higher than anything else that's going to be on television in the entire year. But um, the fact that I think if if we are Devaluing the arts community, and I think this is what I, how I'm looking at it. You know, other nations, you know, you, you know, especially in Europe, have you know a minister of culture. You know, so culture is something that is is held in high regard year round. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas uh, I think Quincy Jones was one of the last people that had plea, had made a plea to the White House to create. You know, a cabinet level post that actually acknowledges arts and culture and music and things like that. And it was batted back. And that might be part of the political divide. But I think it's also the fact that compared to some of the, our European uh, cousins, this is a much younger nation and it may not have been really embraced how much culture does for moving society forward and also recognizing what the pillars are that the society's built on. So if they start saying, well, you know, these other things that don't seem to have like a big, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, cut cut it off here. You know, you you're telling me that that you feel that you can have a really good film without sound. Okay, so I think one of the easiest ways to demonstrate the importance of sound is whoever's at ABC on Oscar night, just cut the sound off on the broadcast.
0: Right and right. then
1: force us to read lips for three hours. You know, Then all of a sudden sound will be important again. Well, what, what, what,
0: what does a director yell every time they're done their shot? They say cut and now the right. editing editing is not a category when cut is such a, I, you know, it doesn't make sense.
1: I mean, I was really, I mean, cause at first I was thinking, okay, they're not gonna really touch any of the visual visual aspects of filmmaking, you know, in terms of who gets, who gets excised. And then I saw film editing there. I'm like, oh really? Oh, okay, so they really are making a statement that no one is interested in the people that actually keep the pacing and and all the layering visually and when this happens and the L cuts and the J cuts and all the things that maybe for the uninitiated, it just goes by but you know, that's what has made filmmaking so much more engaging in a lot of ways is because you have so many different ways of telling your story in ways that would have been, I mean, they could have been done in the conventional method, but it would have been a lot more time consuming to achieve. You know, some of these things that we see in turn, I'm not even talking about visual effects. When we get into visual effects, it's like, <sighs> so again, I, I know I, I have a biased opinion here, but I I don't know if I would, and I actually have friends who are nominated this year and and, uh, uh, one or two of them are in the makeup and hair category. So they've waited years to get to this point where they could actually first be nominated. And if they do win, you're telling me, okay, well, I'm gonna be able to thank my my family and my colleagues in the studio and the academy, but nobody will be there but some TV cameramen and a stage manager and and who else. And of course you have the person handing you the statuette you know,
0: but yeah, th- those are the people I feel sorry for is the, you know, the the, you know, rags to riches stories, the underdogs or even some local success stories. There's a there's a film this year nominated. It's called Audible. It was on Netflix about uh, the Maryland School for the Deaf football team. Oh, right. 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 In Frederick. We interviewed them. It was a sign language interview. They and we were they were saying how ex- so excited they were that we're going to have a big screening of the Oscars at the Maryland School for the Deaf. And right they were so excited. Then a week or two later, this news comes out and suddenly that, okay, so that school can't have a screening now. Like it's that, those are the people I feel the the worst for. And the filmmakers in in those categories, like you're saying, the hair and makeup people that have waited their whole lives or editors. I mean, the most, all the most important categories. Um, it's, that's just kind of sad. I I feel like we're, I, I don't, I don't think we should be dumbing down, um, the broadcast because we think that viewers aren't smart. No, viewers are smart. Like I love when they show. I don't know for screenplay they show the text like in typewriter yeah, yeah, font appearing yeah. on the screen. Show what sound editing is. Show what these are like. Don't dumb it down. Raise raise people. I think right. people are up to right. the challenge if you just show, you know show and Maybe condense the show, cut out other stuff, but don't sacrifice the categories.
1: Yeah, and and I've heard people say that um, we'll see how these young ladies do. Uh, this year, but some people didn't really mind the no-host format.
0: I didn't mind it. Well, I loved you know, Billy Crystal. Uh, there's some that those I love. Are my years. Like, yeah, those oh yeah, my, you got first, to see my, him.
1: <laughs> the first two years he did it were the first, and, and it was almost like you were in a nightclub, except right. there were fourteen or 1,500 people in there, because he really <laughs> knew how to keep the show going. You know, he, 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 he pointed the right fingers at the right studio deals, and <laughs> you know, so that what Batman's not in profit. I mean, he, he had that insider, yeah. you know. But I but I thought that someone watching this who wasn't in on all the inside jokes would still appreciate, you know, how he kept the show moving along and just the energy and the upbeat nature and the the people sitting in the front rows who were your big names, your big stars. They seem to be enjoying themselves, which is important. -hmm. You know, so because those are the ones who you want to see in the stands. And of course, when they call our names and we come out of the shadows and up to the stage, you know, it's a big moment for us. But for the most part, you're watching, you know, those first three or four rows that have the the stars and some of the big directors and whatnot in there. But if you're telling me that um, this is your answer to making the show more palatable and to raise the numbers, we'll see we'll see what Nielsen says, uh, if, if this stays in play. I mean, it seems like there doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to be any um, modifications uh, that are gonna happen this show, but the producers of the show, the, the host of the show, host of the show are saying that they're gonna keep it lively and they're gonna point fingers and make jokes. But um, if they decided that we're not gonna have any of the actors except live and, You know, maybe a few directors aren't going to be featured, then all of a sudden, I think the entire academy would push back instead of of the selected few from all all walks of the academy. But it, it seems to be the pushback needs to be almost universal and say, leadership, you need to rethink this.
0: Right. Yeah. And again, I I hope you and I I hope we're wrong. I hope ratings boost. I I hope I sit down and I see these edited together packages and I think, okay, you know what, they got their moment. But I'm just skeptical because like you're saying, you're in your case, you're you're up there accepting for dances with wolves and you're able to look out in the crowd and say, Hey, Kevin Costner, you can make eye contact. Hey, thank you. Great. Whereas now these people this year are it's going to be a partly empty auditorium and, and the kevin costner's of of today are going to be out on the red carpet doing interviews right. while this is going on so right. i know we've seen some people some of the actors um like boycotting and saying no i'm 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 gonna be in the auditorium and skip the red carpet etc i want to support my craftsmen, and maybe we'll see more of that but yeah i think it's a w- I don't know. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I really, I really want, I, I think everyone, all the craftsmen like yourself deserve the, that live moment with the live lights, you know, the spotlight. I
1: mean, you know, it's like, that's, that's it for us. I yeah. mean, were it not for YouTube. See, one of the nicer things about YouTube is now you can go on and see uh, and the studios to their credit have done a really good job marketing in the social media era because you know, there would be dis- there would have been discussions about how we did such and such on Glory, and what was it like being on the prairie in South Dakota and running five thousand head of buffalo. Because you can go on YouTube and see the team from Dune, you can see the team from West Side Story, you can. Uh, You know, hear them talk about the production design of Nightmare Alley and so forth and so on. Will Smith and the cast from King Richard, you know, so, but in my era, there was absolutely no chance that you were going to see somebody who worked behind the camera at all on television, except if you won and you got a chance to stand up and say thank you to the Academy. But uh, the actors are always out there.
0: Oh well, yeah, the comment. actors are no, the are the the quarterbacks yeah. and your star yeah. running back. Whereas the you know the sound guys are like the the poor linemen that never get any credit on this. Yeah, team. I, mean, so I mean you know I
1: you I'm the, the pulling guard. I'm the pulling guard. <laughs> you never see my face.
0: <laughs> Thanks for hopping on here to talk about this. Thanks, Russell. All right, my brother. Thank you.